Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Attention all personnel. Please clear the launching area. Fire. Fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, yeah. Welcome to the December 2020 edition of Space Boffins, the first from our new shiny Space Boffins studio. Woohoo! Thank you. <laughs> I was expecting wild. (laughs) (laughs) We're in partnership with the Naked Scientist. I'm Richard Holligan. And I'm Sue Nelson. And joining us in the studio, which is appropriately very similar in size to a space capsule, (laughs) we're thinking Mercury, uh, is engineer and senior space systems strategist. Do you know what? Thank goodness I haven't said that after a Christmas party drink because I can barely say it now. From Airbus Defence and Space, Liz Seward. Apart from being unpronounceable it's a very impressive job title (laughs) thank you does this just basically mean you're a space nerd yes definitely (laughs) well later we'll be hearing about the remarkable sew sisters the women who sewed the apollo shuttle and iss spacesuits also more on europe's latest mission to the sun and find out what happens next four three two one fire seven pressures holding Liz, we've just had the European Space Agency, ESA, a ministerial conference. Ministers agreed future funding plans. Now, almost everything, this is quite unusual, really, that the Director General Jan Werner asked for, he got. And the UK's contributed a record amount, £274 million a year. What does it mean in terms of missions? Well, it means that we can do pretty much everything that we were hoping to do, which is fantastic. It is also, as you said, interesting because the the ESA got what they want. So although we've increased our funding, so has everybody else. So our share of the work actually remains pretty similar. But we'll get to do some really cool things. I'm really excited because of the rover. So on the exploration side, the team who built the ExoMars rover are now working on the Sample Fetch rover. And they've been planning and working as though they're going to get the money without knowing whether it's actually going to be able to be a mission or not. Um, It's quite difficult, isn't it? So they were super relieved uh, (laughs) after the ministerial result. And what does it mean for Airbus? Because every time we go there, and the great thing is, is that you're you're based only 15, well, five minutes away from us, actually, um, down, down the A1 is that you're always building spacecraft. You've got your rover. Before it's even launched, you're thinking of the next one. What does it mean in terms of Airbus perhaps building some new spacecraft in the future? 
we're really pleased that we're going to stay involved in Copernicus uh, so that in the, the early phases we'll be doing the work on the ESA missions. So that's this um, Earth Observation Program, but it's uh, complicated by the fact that it's a European Commission, European Union Earth Observation Program. So there's some doubt about whether the UK would take part in that. Yes, and in fact, we we don't know if we'll take part in the the later stages. But the first part is ESA only, and so that's the bit that we're going to stay involved in. And that's a really exciting bit, developing the new instruments and the new missions. And that's what will let us build a satellite in Stevenage. I'm quite excited about the go ahead for. Orion and, you know, pushing on to the, to the moon and this being an international project, whatever the White House may say, this is going to become an international mission to the moon rather than just a, an America is great mission to the moon. Yeah, so the ESA have money in the exploration budget so that they can be involved. And NASA know that they can't do it by themselves. It's a huge undertaking. And so they have said that they will need international partners. So in Europe, we're building the service module for Orion. And uh, we'll be able to continue that and keep being part of the mission. And so Orion is the capsule that will take the astronauts to the moon and to lunar orbit. And then the Deep Space Gateway is the space station that will be built and um, Europe will be able to provide elements of that. The UK is an expert in communications and we are looking at providing the lunar comms so that anybody who communicates from the lunar surface will do it through British technology. Um, That is so cool. And it could be. I mean, this is not beyond the bounds of possibility. It could be a British astronaut on the moon. Well, Tim Peake, basically. Well, so one of the really exciting things is Tim Peake will have a second mission. So sometime in the 2020s, he will fly again. Uh, But yes, as to where we don't know, probably the International Space Station. But if we've moved on by the time he gets his flight, it could be the moon. The other one, and, you know, because the last ministerial, they didn't get any go ahead for an asteroid mission they desperately wanted. This time we've got this mission HERA, which is part of this joint NASA mission. So you've got this NASA mission DART, which is the idea is to sort of try and knock an asteroid off course. And then HERA will kind of investigate it further. Is that is that the idea? Yes. So um, the asteroid itself is really interesting. It's a, a binary system. So uh, the main body is a Didymon and the, has this tiny little thing around it called Didymoon, which is very cute. Didymon, Didymon. Um, and so DART, the NASA mission, will hit the main uh, body. Um, and in doing so, they expect the little uh, orbiting piece of rock to, to move and change. And so HERA will turn up and it will be able to see what those differences are and, and those changes. And it's by this binary system that they'll be able to tell much more accurately rather than if they used a sort of single orbiting asteroid. Um, uh, it's got some really unique technologies. It's going to do autonomous navigation around an asteroid that hasn't been done before. It but- is a mission that doesn't have much UK involvement. Um, we're doing a, a sort of sister mission to that in the same series called Lagrange. You say sister, some people might say rival. <laughs> <laughs> I'm probably not a allowed to comment. <laughs> um, so this one is um, uh, a space weather mission. It doesn't sound as sexy, but it's much more important to us here on Earth. It's going to study the sun and give us advance warning of solar activity, which can knock out power supplies and, and power systems and communications and disrupt banking and all sorts of things. So uh, it will sit at the Lagrange 5 point, this point in space where you can orbit around a sort of invisible point where all the gravities balance out. The man that discovered them was Lagrange and so this mission is named after him. 
Well, last time our guest Chris Lee, the、uh, head of science at the UK Space Agency, very enthusiastic head of science, I should say, at the UK Space Agency, was raving about a new mission to the Sun, Solar Orbiter, due for launch in February. The ESA spacecraft was built、uh, in Stevenage, a few miles away from Space Boffins headquarters, as we like to call it. <laughs> As no one calls it. And I was going to say it's a bit like <laughs> Thunderbirds,、no、isn't it? Yes, yes right. Yeah, very much like that.、Um, a good number of UK scientists are also involved in the mission, fitted with ten、uh, instruments and a heat shield capable of enduring temperatures of more than five hundred degrees Celsius. Solar Orbiter will take the closest ever pictures of our star, and the mission will operate alongside NASA's Parker Probe. Well, I went to see the spacecraft in Munich just before it was packed up for launch, and in the main atrium at the IABG. Space Centre. I spoke to principal investigator for the magnetometer instrument Tim Horbury from Imperial College London, and NASA deputy project scientist Holly Gilbert. I asked her first what the mission will be investigating. The Sun actually has a large domain of influence, and we're embedded in that larger solar atmosphere. And the bubble is called the, the heliosphere, and this extends way beyond the orbit of Pluto, even. And Solar Orbiter is going to help us understand some of the fundamental physics that goes on with all of the plasma that's being blown out by the sun and its atmosphere. So that's why you have to go close to the sun to understand something that this bubble all all around the sun. Correct. I, the the solar wind begins at the sun, and a lot of the action takes place in the lower corona or the lower solar atmosphere. So by going closer, then we can really sample the solar wind in its pristine state before it gets to Earth, where we're normally studying it. And Tim is very、uh, good at explaining this. this is, Very relevant to his science. <laughs> so you're very good. No pressure.、Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, let's talk about it back then in terms of the solar wind, because that's where you come、right. in and understanding this magnetic influence as well of the sun. Right. So the magnetic field is really important to everything that the sun does. So the sun's really hot. So the atmosphere is up to a million degrees, and as a result, instead of the neutral fluids that we see on the Earth,、uh, the neutral atoms, the electrons get ripped off those atoms, and we end up with charged particles, protons and electrons. And those charged particles are sensitive to the magnetic field. So we have what we call a plasma, and that makes the dynamics much more complicated than anything we see on Earth. The sun's magnetic field gets really tangled up by the dynamics, the convection that's going on inside the sun. So it erupts out of the sun's surface and then controls the behavior of the particles. So we have this really complicated. To play, and it's it's so structured and so dynamic on so many scales. The large scales we've been able to measure before, the really big, like the North Pole versus the equator, that kind of thing. But the fine scale structures, which is what we really need to understand to look at the detailed physics of how the sun, the sun's atmosphere gets hot. And how the solar wind is actually created, how it blows away from the sun. We need to get close because, as Holly says, we need to measure that pristine solar wind as young as we can before it actually gets washed out as it travels away from the sun. The solar wind is really structured, and it kind of blurs out as you go away from the sun. So by the time it even passes the Earth, it's sort of a bit old and tired compared to what it was like when it's young and energetic near the sun itself.、Uh, why is this just an understanding of, of if we figure this out? Give us a better understanding of the whole solar system, how everything interacts.、Uh, yes, and other stars as well.、Uh, the sun is pretty much in our backyard in terms of astrophysics. When we understand how the sun is creating its atmosphere, how it's blowing it off, why it's so hot, that helps us understand things about how life was created. Even it really is about 
studying the fundamental physics that occur not just at the sun, they also occur at the earth and throughout the universe. Uh, but getting that fundamental understanding allows us to ultimately be able to predict space weather, which is one important component of that. Uh, and that's the influence of the sun on the earth and these charged particles Correct. on the earth. Yes, it is. And, and even not just at earth, but other planets. And so um, this is a, an important thing, especially for us here on earth, because it affects our technology, our satellites, GPS, our electric grids, so it's a pretty big influence. Now, we just had the, the press conference about solar orbiters that gets shipped off to the, to the US for, for launch. There was one phrase that stood out uh, where they were saying, it, the, the sun, it's just an average star. It's just an average star. Okay, so it's I, not that important in the grand scheme of things. So I think the word just doesn't belong in that sentence. <laughs> it's a star. And uh, when you look up at night and you see all those stars, for so many millennia we've looked up and wondered what they are. We know what they are now and we can study one. It's in our backyard. And I think we don't realise, when we look at the sun, it's a yellow blob. It's great, you know, it powers the life on Earth. It makes a nice warm sunny day. But we don't realise just how fascinating an object is. So Holly's described the importance of space weather in understanding how the sun influences our lives as we are more dependent on technology, about uh, the sun as a prototype star for sure. We're also going to study fundamental physical processes that occur in other places around the solar system as well. So things like shocks and, and turbulence and so on. They're really important, for example, in around black holes, around neutron stars, uh, accretion disks around stars, the, the medium between, between the galaxies. But I think there's something even bigger than that, which is that it's an extraordinary object. And plasmas are so fascinating in what they do. And you just have to look at some of these movies, some of the pictures of the sun, and some of the measurements that we make. It is endlessly fascinating. And I think if it was utterly unimportant to us, insignificant to us. If it wasn't like any other star, if it wasn't the same kind of physics that goes on in the universe, we'd still want to study it because it is an extraordinary object and it's in our backyard. And it's not just Solar Orbiter that's going to be studying the sun. We've already got observatories out there now. I mean, SOHO, notably, just carrying on and carrying on and carrying on. But you launched the, uh, the Parker probe. So the two will be looking at the sun at the same time? Yes, Parker launched a little over a year ago, and there are overlapping science goals between the two missions, but the two together will really be an amazing combination, very powerful, because Solar Orbiter will be able to provide some of the context imaging. It will also be able to measure some of the same solar wind and the plasma, and so it's, it's just kind of this wonderful combination and synergy between the two. And you touched on this, but actually understanding the star, our nearest star, I mean, really helps us understand life and the formation of life. It can. I mean, if we don't understand the sun, then we really are at a disadvantage in understanding how we all came to be and how the solar system formed and all of that. So it's really fundamental. And as Tim mentioned, even if it was just an average boring star, is really incredibly sophisticated and dynamic, and that's why I got into the field. I saw images and movies of the sun, and I couldn't believe how complicated it was and how dynamic. So We can only see the sun in visible light, but imagine if you could see it in ultraviolet light with these kind of movies, and imagine if you could look up and not just see the blue sky, but see the sun like we see it from some of these ultraviolet movies, and see the solar wind in deep space we would spend our entire lives looking up. It would just be the most spectacular view. And it's a sadness to me that we can't see it. But with spacecraft, of course, we can, and we can go and measure it. And it's an extraordinary thing. And we're going to be doing this for a long time to come because it's just such a fascinating thing to study. You can tell we like our jobs. <laughs> <laughs> 
Holly Gilbert and Tim Horbury chatting to me about Solar Orbiter. Uh, right now, the mission's being prepared for launch in Florida. It's due to blast off on the 7th of February on an Atlas V rocket. And excuse the banging in the background, they were assembling a, uh, a German buffet. <laughs> so there was sauerkraut there was there were dumplings there were, i mean it was those dumplings was are heavy aren't they oh, yeah, it was enormous absolutely enormous uh thanks very much to the uh, uk space agency for supporting that feature and supporting the other features on the uh, on the space boffins podcast liz we, we heard them talk about fundamental physics there and there's a, a mission lisa that will be happening soon lisa pathfinder it will follow on from that which was all about testing the technology for detecting gravitational waves. So does the um, recent ministerial mean, pretty sure, we've got Lisa... All, all systems go. Yes, it does. Uh, so, yeah, LISA mission is now in the planning. Uh, it'll launch in the 2030s. It's three satellites flying in formation, five million kilometres apart, behind the Earth, this sort of trail in a the heliocentric orbit, so it goes around the sun. And there are test masses inside each satellite, which are gold and platinum uh, balls. And they are uh, connected by laser beams. I thought they were cubes, actually. Cubes, they are cubes. You're right, thanks. (laughs) Um, And they're they're connected by laser beams. And the laser beam can measure picometer differences in their movements. Which which is is, that that 10 to the minus 9, is it? Yes, so I'll go with that. We'll right, go with minus that. 12? Yeah, oh, minus maybe it's minus 12. Oh, Pico. I've forgotten that. Me yeah. too. Answers on a postcard, <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> yeah. um, and so these very, no, very... No, Nano's nine, isn't it? Oh, no, no, this we'll is look really it, good. We'll look maybe it up. Maybe you're right. Maybe yeah. it is minus 12. I'm quite... In... No, sorry, I've got really interested right, in this. We'll, <laughs> we'll look it up in a we'll second. Okay. We'll come back to it. <laughs> So the the spacecraft will be able to measure these minute movements uh, that will happen when a gravity wave passes through the spacecraft constellation. And the reason that you have three of them is so that you can triangulate the position, so that our optical telescopes can look at something. And then LISA, which is the Laser Interferometer Space Antenna, well done, can detect uh, <laughs> where this uh, can then pick up a gravity wave, and we can work out where it's come from. And it Pico quite- is one times ten to the minus, minus twelve. 12. I knew, I, funnily enough, I just as you started, I thought, no, it's 12, it's 12. Oh, well done, well done, Liz. I'm celebrating. Um, <laughs> and I, I sort of remember that um, while Lisa Pathfinder was doing its, its mission, there was actually proof of gravitational waves, but in a ground-based detector, which could have stolen the mission's thunder, really, which could have made them think, well, we don't need to, we don't need to go into space now because we've, we've got a system that works down here. But I thought it was a very good sort of response that I read at the time, which was that, well, actually, that's detected on the ground, but we need to detect gravitational waves in in space. And we need it more than ever because the system on the ground is limited by the distance that you can dig a tunnel in an area that doesn't have any outside influences and vibrations, so no lorries driving over it. And what it means is it detects only very high-frequency gravity waves because of the shorter baseline, whereas LISA will be enormous and it will detect the really 
big gravity rays. So it's perfect, in fact. The timing yeah. was fantastic to show that they they do exist. Einstein was right because it all comes from Einstein's theory of general relativity. And Lisa will give us this fundamental physics view of the universe that, that hasn't existed. Um, somebody I talked to said it's a bit like when they discovered um, the infrared. It's a whole new area that we'll be able to observe um, things in to teach us things that we don't yet know that we don't know. You're listening to Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and even email, mail, you know, whiteboards, whatever. Info at boffinmedia.co.uk. I think we should encourage post, but I can never remember what our address is, so that's not. <laughs> no, no. Um, I, what I really want to mention is Sue, or rather Sue's book... Wally Funk's Race for Space. The fabulous Wally Funk's Race for Space. Good stocking filler <laughs> at Christmas. Right, yes. uh, I know uh, I'll is on, that. Yeah, is yeah. in an Adidas advert. I know. That was a complete surprise. I just purely found out because I was tagged on, on, twi- on a tweet. An, this is an Instagram It's Yeah, that's right. It was Adidas, an Instagram. Yeah. That's right. Adidas London. And it's a woman called Eleanor Frost from UCL who works within um, space and medicine and um, she wants to be an astronaut. Who doesn't? But unlike me, she's a obviously a a good runner and so it's an ad talking about her ambitions space and it looks like she's in her room and you see lovely little space artifacts and stuff behind memorabilia and what have you behind her and then they show a bookshelf and there is Wally Funk's Race of Space and I was so thrilled and I wouldn't have known I think it was Dallas Campbell actually who said yay there's there's uh, Wally Funk's Race of Space so Eleanor thank you thank you you are reaching new audiences. Yeah, that's so cool. But I keep saying cool today, don't I? But it is. It's very cool. You're down with the kids. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, really. that's old fashioned. Now. <laughs> yeah, no yeah, one, yeah. no one says that. Um, uh, while we're on the housekeeping, um, we'll come back to the uh, the jingle competition. We'll do that in January. Um, more excitingly, the Doctor Who magazine competition. So this is um, Doctor Who uh, annual. We went to the, got this junk shop in Birmingham, which was just fantastic, and I bought this whole selection because they were there of almost mint condition Doctor Who annuals and this was from uh, 1978 I put this on Facebook um, which is probably you know breaking some sort of BBC you know rule or something in a spot the difference competition with the doctor obviously the doctor tom baker uh in the tardis i could spot four differences but uh there are apparently five differences yeah, <laughs> so also pointed out yeah. it says because i was really flummoxed by this I thought, i'm never gonna find five it says right at the bottom check your answers on page 60 yeah, yeah, yeah i just didn't spot you've that failed the intelligence yeah, so there uh, test there but uh i must admit i always like those spot the di- difference uh things in annuals i think there's a big uh, they should bring annuals. Well, they do still have annuals, so you can still don't get a they? Bino annual, a dandy, yeah, yeah. I, annual, I, I like. I think they need to do some sort of spacey annual. When is the boffin annual coming? Christmas annual. Yes, there could be a that limited could, edition. We could just make them ourselves. <laughs> yeah, we could do a spot the difference, couldn't we? You know? That would be great, wouldn't it? We can give you some great imagery for that. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> we'll be at Airbus. We'll be in that clean room, moving a few things around. <laughs> Taking a little little instrument off a spacecraft just <laughs> spot the difference. No, okay, maybe not. To a before bit. and after. Yeah, that, okay, that, yeah, that okay. obviously I mean, that needs a little bit of thought. Doesn't it? That, well, that thinks about it. Well, as you probably, oh, oh Richard, oh, I'm so. Pleased. 
That is so funny. That's because you were checking. You were checking pico meter, yeah, weren't was, you? That's yeah. so funny. And you know what you've just reminded me of? In um, over the summer, I made a, a program. I just mentioned Dallas Campbell. Actually, I made a Radio Four program with Dallas called Moonbase Twenty Twenty Seven, and we were at Cologne at the um, East Astronaut Training Centre. And we were doing an interview with Tim Peake and we were in that um, mock-up of the International Space Station. And halfway through the interview, that happened. my phone went off. But my phone is more a sort of, you know, bring, 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 bring. And the, I'll have to find actually the outtake and play it for you because we've got Tim Peake and Alice just going, oh, Sue, that's so unprofessional, Sue. That's so, so I'm so glad. It's not just me now. It's but not just to, in me. my defence, it was to look up picometers. <laughs> yes, oh, good grief. Right, well, let's go back to what I was about to say. Uh, you probably, well, you definitely know from that that both of us make radio programmes. And I've got one coming up that space fans are definitely going to like. It's called Hey Sisters, So Sisters. The title, It's all in the title. Uh, it's on BBC World Service on New Year's Eve. And it's about the women sewers on space missions from the moon landings to the present day. America's Apollo astronauts needed space suits, of course, and they were made at ILC Dover in Delaware. And I was there recently for the programme uh, with the presenter who is astronaut Nicole Stott. Hi, Nicole. And uh, I met there Bill Airy, who managed the test lab there for 40 years and is also the company historian. Well, here's what Bill had to say about the seamstresses to the stars. They were the one employee in the company that walked out at the end of the day having produced something, and that something was the spacesuit. When Neil Armstrong, for instance, set foot on the moon, what you saw was a spacesuit on the moon. So those sewers, the ladies that did it, could really take the pride in what they did because there it was. There was their work on the moon. The draftsmen, all the people that supported it, certainly had that, that, that pleasure and, and excitement too because they played a critical role. But the sewers, it was their work you'd see front and center. Well, Jean Wilson was one of those seamstresses. Now in her early 70s, she joined ILC Dover at 19 years old and became head sewer, working on the Apollo spacesuits. Well, all of it was delicate. and uh, But the thing is, is that it was very technical for everything that you had to do. You didn't take for granted, like, oh, this is a piece of cake, I can do, you know. So it was like everything. You had to really be very careful and be very delicate. Most of what I did, helping to put the suit together, was the sleeves, the torso area, the legs, all of that. Uh, there was ladies that, and seamstresses that mainly dealt with the gloves, and then there were some that did the boots. And um, I know there was one young lady, um, she, um, she has since, I think, passed away, but she made a set of boots, and, she, and every time they were inspected, they went, everything went through. Everything was good, good, good. Everything was perfect. So she actually made a perfect pair of boots that had absolutely nothing wrong with them. How much was hand-sewn and how much was machine-sewn on, on the suit? Mostly everything was basically machine. It was done by machine. Um, some things were glued or, or a certain way. It was sealed a certain way, but it was mostly sewn by machine. There were things like snaps and different things like that that were put on the suits. They were done by special equipment that we had. 
And the, the American flag and, and the name patch, mm. did, did you sew those? Yes, in? I remember so. Yeah, I remember having those had to be sewed on. Like Alden or someone or some of the other astronauts, Armstrong sewing the name on. And putting it on, it had to go on a certain way, using the certain type of thread that we had. So at 19 years old, I had to give orders and instructions to women that were in their 40s and 50s. And in 1969, during that time, you're talking about, and being a female and the fact that I was also, they called me the colored girl because of the fact I was so young. Even though there was a difference with some of them because they were dealing with the fact of having to take orders from someone and then the fact of the color of my skin and everything else, um, it did cause some issues, but not very long because within a week's time, I was very patient. And I could tell some of them didn't want to do what they were told, but you got to remember how important their jobs were. How do you feel now about your work and about the fact that you are were a part, are a part of space history? I've always felt that I did something that was important, and I'm really proud of the fact, you know, that I remembered what my mother told me and taught me. And I listened to her because a lot of my friends, when I was coming up in school, had home economics classes and all that, Like, but they didn't listen. They didn't care, and they didn't listen. But I took a lot of pride in what I did then, and now I'm learning from my family. Now it's all coming out, 19, you know, what happened in 1969, and they're celebrating it now 50 years later. I have brothers and, and a sister that's still living, and I have other family members, uh, nieces and nephews and different ones that in my family, besides some of my neighbors and friends and all, are finding out. I said, boy, you're like a celebrity. You know, boy, this, that's really special what you did, you know. And, um, and to find out more about the history of different things that happened. And uh, it's quite rewarding. But I feel so special. That's why I, I brought along a picture of my mother to show you. So because of her teaching me how to sew, and then I was able to advance on and to go into uh, working the way I did on the Apollo space suits. And that helped me to go a step farther and to have my own business and getting more into designs and all that. The basic premise of a spacesuit hasn't changed as far as the soft goods. The parts of the suits that are sewn together still require the sewers to be able to sew these parts together and make it work. Seams have to be within a a sixteenth of an inch, uh, sometimes even tighter tolerances, and they have to hold up to the strengths, and it has to be repeated over and over again. It has to be done the same way so the quality is the same and it's consistent. Reliability is built into it. So we still depend very, uh, very much on these sewers and the work they do. Now these, uh, these space shuttle suits have now evolved into the space station suits, the International Space Station, when we retired the space shuttle. The, essentially the same suits are being used with some modifications uh, on board the, the International Space Station. So, uh, again, life critical. If an astronaut goes out and does a space walk and their spacesuit fails, uh, uh, their life is in, in, in our hands, uh, essentially, and the suits have to hold up to the, to the rigors of a six-hour or seven or maybe close to eight-hour spacewalk. Well, it wasn't just spacesuits. The space shuttle required a surprisingly large amount of sewing, from the tile gap fillers, which were made of fabric, to thermal blankets inside the bulkhead on the side of the vehicle, and also on the orbital manoeuvring system, the two big engines on the back beside the three main shuttle engines. Well, the lovely 
So, sister, Jean Wright is a NASA volunteer or docent at the Kennedy Space Center. But during the shuttle era, she was an aerospace composite technician for NASA's soft goods. The composition of them, and it's, it'll surprise you because the fabric is literally made out of quartz stone. The thread is quartz, the layering, and we had different thicknesses that we stacked depending on the class of the blanket with spun quartz and the backing fabric that would actually glue to the shuttle itself is just plain old fiberglass. Mm-hmm. It's pretty basic. So the main question I get asked all the time as a docent is, how in the world do you make thread and fabric out of quartz? And I asked one of my engineers that day, his name's Tim Wright, and he said to me, have you ever seen cotton candy being made? And I said, well, sure. And he goes, just imagine powdered quartz. And we literally put it in a machine where it melts it to a liquid. And then from there, it's made almost like cotton candy. He goes, we get that little spinnerette of thread, and then consequently we can weave it into a fabric. So that's surprising to people. What's also surprising is the machine that Jean used to sew these thermal blankets, which were rated for temperatures up to 650 degrees Fahrenheit or more. And some of them had names. All of them had names, in fact. One of them was called Lurch but not this one. It's a multi-needle machine, and it's 10 feet tall, and it looks like a weaving loom. It's got 30 needles that are about 9 inches long, and 2 inches are up into the machine. It's got a trough of WD-40 that holds about 1 or 2 gallons, maybe upwards of 3. And as a seamstress, it's really tough because we would have a spray bottle of WD-40, and as the blanket's going through being quilted, you have to spray fabric with oil, and that to me is just, it's shocking. After that, we, we know the blanket's going to fit people are unaware of we bake the blankets we have ovens downstairs it looks like pizza ovens and the blankets will be baked in two steps at 650 degrees for four hours then it gets bumped up to 850 for two more and it literally turns beige and off-white fabric to it looks like white silk when we take it out of the Mm. oven then it will get its room temperature vulcanization or the rtv glue gets glued right onto the shuttle skin we'll get a clear coat of ceramic paint called c9 and then four hours later a white hard coat will go on, which is why people ask me all the time, it can't be the real shuttle because she looks like paper mache. But we did a lot of things, a lot more hand sewing than people think, because all 2200 blankets, we have to knot the intersection where the threads meet, flip the fabric to the back, and every one of those are stitched by hand. Um, We also did thermal barriers. Uh, They're about four feet long and would take us four days apiece to do by hand. Those are installed in all the window, I mean, the wheel wells, and we ladies, after the thermal barriers are done, we hand sew those into place. And on average, it would take 17 hours for two of us to sew all 12 of them in to one wheel well, and they're only rated roughly for three flights. The glorious Jean Wright, a wonderful woman, and just a taster of her and the other seamstresses that appear in Hey Sisters, So Sisters, which will be broadcast on BBC World Service on December the 31st and will be available on the BBC website or the Sounds app after that. Liz Seward's still with us from Airbus. You think she'd run off? Yeah, well, <laughs> no, she's, still, she's still here. You can't, she can't get out of the studio yeah, yeah. small. I've yeah. locked it. Yeah. Yeah. The beautiful, uh, wonderful studio. Yes, very thank you very much. Thank yeah. you. Now, last time I interviewed you, Liz, it was in the uh, overlooking the Mars rover 
room as the Mars. Oh, actually, I mean, it was amazing, and we were watching the Mars rover being assembled. We just we happened were. to be very lucky that they were sort of moving things around the, the ExoMars rover at, at Airbus. And then you were demonstrating how clean you had to be to go into the clean room. And one aspect of that was putting gloves on, and we put that on space boffins. I think it's in the um, September edition of, of space boffins, and everyone laughed at me because I couldn't put on a pair of gloves. It's really hard. So we've asked you to bring us some gloves for our special Christmas edition. We are going to put gloves on on <laughs> right, a podcast. We'll oh, I'm a bit sweaty actually. So this, this Can I go and get my towel compound? So this is the sort of thing that wins Space Boffins Awards. <laughs> Putting and, gloves on. Okay. And I have to admit, so your struggles were partly my fault because we had a very small pair of gloves. So this time I've asked for large gloves. Oh, so fun. and okay. I have one for everybody. Thank okay. you. So okay. here is your gloves. So they're oh, Merry Christmas, everyone. Thank you. Some, uh, Sterile. Sterile. Sterile gloves. Okay, so what gloves. do we do? So they're in the packets. So, yep. so you peel the packets open, and if you were um, really so there, you'd be very careful about what you put down. So it mustn't touch the outside of the gloves, presumably? Uh no, so you're, there's certain bits you can touch. So it okay. comes in this folded piece of plastic, oh, so you can you can take it out. Take it out, okay. Um, and wow, then, this is plastic within plastic. So the gloves, okay, so these are the gloves now within a folded plastic. Mm-hmm. And they're already set, so you've already got the the sort of folded over, so you can already got the inside slightly on the outside <laughs> at the bottom part of the glove, if I'm describing that correctly. Basically, the inside of the glove is allowed to be dirty because that will touch your yeah. skin. The outside yeah. must be sterile. You may only touch the outside of the cuff. You can't tuck your fingers in because then you're touching the sterile side. Okay, so, okay, so um, I can put my so fingers to... in the glove. Ah, right. Okay. And I can touch the inside with the other hand, can't I? Yes, you can touch the folded cuff. Hey, I'm doing this. You can't touch the outside. I'm doing it, I'm doing it, doing it, doing it. Right, so I've almost got. I've got the glove on. So the first on, one looks like putting on yeah. the tightest pair of marigolds ever. But you can't touch the outside, so oh, you'd have actually failed. I can I've touch, failed it. I can oh, touch man. the outside with this. No, yes. So the you can touch the inside with your dirty hand, but the outside you can only touch with your clean sterile glove. So I can put the outside. They can so put the you, clean glove on the outside bit. And in fact, the cuff is designed so that you can slot your clean fingers inside the cuff like this. Here's what I'm demonstrating. Ah, okay. So that it gives you a handhold so that you can then slide your hand See, in. See, one glove is relatively like easy. This. It's the second glove that's. You've done it i've got mine on I've got one. apparently i've failed <laughs> so so like if you basically if the glove is like that hold on i'm trying i'm trying the second one on this time i'm determined not to fail no 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 but you're touching the inside I'm of the not, glove I'm, with uh, the clean yes yes you have to tuck you can't your do that. In oh. like that so you failed you have to take the cuff and yeah. tuck all four of your sterile fingers, but yeah. t- turn it round so yeah. like this. Okay, so I've got um, them on. And then that forms your handhold to right. hold tight. Okay. And then I can put the other glove and then on. Put the other glove on. <laughs> okay, try again. <laughs> Twist. <laughs> okay, so um, well, we'll struggle with this now. At the beginning of the podcast, I can't believe now I've got these gloves on. At the beginning of the podcast, we played you a clip from the um, Apollo 10 mission. Apollo 10 is often called the dress rehearsal for the moon landing. Uh, Tom Stafford and Gene Cernan flew the lunar lander known as Snoopy within just 47,000 feet of the moon's surface. After a dramatic flight, which we've talked about before on the podcast, they returned to the Charlie Brown mothership to rejoin their crewmate, John Young. And then they separated from Snoopy. Okay, Houston, we'll give you a countdown. We're all set to go for step, right? That's affirmative. Charlie Brown, we're standing by for your count. The idea was to send it towards the sun. 
give you a five count. Four, three, two, one, fire. Cabin pressure's holding. Snoop went someplace. Damn, when he leaves, he leaves. Yeah, okay, don't back into that dude now, John, when you get turned around. Are you keeping it in sight? Yeah, okay. Joe, he took off so fast, he's gone, he went right into the sun. Or at least that's what they thought. It turns out that Snoopy, the Apollo 10 Lem, is still out there in orbit around the sun. Engineer, educator and Apollo enthusiast Nick Howes has been leading efforts to track it down. Apollo 10 was the first time they'd obviously gone to the moon to do a full dress rehearsal. And what happened with all the other subsequent lunar modules, apart from Apollo 13, which was used as a lifeboat to get the crew back to Earth, which is now at the bottom of the Tonga Trench at 30,000 feet or whatever. Um, But all of the others were crashed into the lunar surface for uh, assistance with the seismic experiments. With Apollo 10, once they completed their kind of fly above uh, the lunar surface, um, they reconnected back with the command module, Charlie Brown, which is in the Science Museum, and then basically fired off the lunar module into what's called a heliocentric orbit, which is what the Earth is doing. So it kind of goes around the sun. Um, So it was fired with uh, sufficient burn. So the engine's burn is called a delta V burn. So it's basically velocity and trajectory. So it's basically where it goes in space. Um, And talking to Gene Cernan a few years ago, before he sadly passed away, um, he said, oh, yeah, we chucked it into the sun. And some of the modelling we did showed that it was actually thrown in a sunward direction. Um, It was tracked then for several hours after that um, by mission control and, and the ground telemetry team looking at uh, the data burn to depletion so effectively to get rid of all the fuel um, but what was interesting some of the data we got back showed that the velocity that it separated was kind of not what they expected and it was because it was an issue with the hatch and it kind of depressurized so essentially the cabin had depressurized and it's just flown off into this heliocentric orbit so because the cabin had depressurized, that gave it, what, some extra thrust? A bit of extra kick, yeah. So some of this data wasn't really in the public domain. Um, so as I said, a few years ago, um, I kind of set up a project to hunt for Snoopy um, based upon the success we'd had with the Fox telescopes with finding asteroids with some you know, young people. And the idea was to really engage kids in science and discovery and trying to find things of, of interest. And at the time, I was kind of told it was Im- almost impossible. The odds were hundreds of millions to one kind of thing. Well, you know, yeah, I mean, think of the size of that i mean it's it's not much bigger than a, a wardrobe it's yeah. not much bigger than a wardrobe and they've yeah. headed off towards the sun i mean you're talking big distances yeah here. you're looking at a 900 million kilometer orbit with a 4.5 meter wide spacecraft <laughs> um and no accurate data on it since 1969 we you know we had basic what's called ephemeris so the position yeah you know, like a sat nav it's position in space uh, from 1969 but that was it so what we then did was we looked at the best known accurate tracking data and a guy called Mike Laux, who is an astrodynamics expert, worked on the LADI mission, for example, on the moon, he helped enormously um, using some modelling software to model potentially where it could be. So we came up with a few solutions of, of various orbits. And then early last year, I kind of got a heads up from a friend who works at Catalina Sky Survey saying we've got a new object that's kind of you may want to look at this. So we looked at the data on that, and the object was called 2018 AV2. Um, and the name comes from its time of year when it's discovered. So AV2 is basically January, to, you know, early January object. So we looked at this object and immediately the size was right. 
and the orbit seemed to match the data models that we put together and it was it was kind of that and then we were looking at some of the radar data from it as well and the radar data was all over the place and it was very weird not a typical asteroidal kind of radar profile um and we kind of looked through the data extensively thinking well possibly possibly and then another team at jpl led by paul chodas um he'd commented as well via kind of set of private messages saying this we really believe this could be snoopy so um after like lots of thought and lots of kind of remodeling and mike's still working on some new models etc we pretty we're about 99 percent convinced that it is snoopy the problem we've now got is is at mag 29.7 so there's literally no telescope on earth that can now see it um and its orbit basically it's in this weird convoluted looping orbit that we predicted so the orbits match it's, it's a really good match um unfortunately it's not coming back into our neck of the woods until about 2037 so we've been talking to people on the sls project because artemis one artemis two obviously are going translunar and they've said look if you can get enough funds together for a, a 12 unit cubesat mission uh, and stick some cameras and possibly lidar on it, etc. You know, reasonable resolution cameras. You could get a flyby, and we worked out the basically the burn times to get, you know, and the, delta, the this velocity delta, delta v thing the, to get there. And it's about 105 days. We could do an intercept of what Snoopy, where Snoopy is, with a cubesat and image it up close to prove conclusively that it is. So hang on, this would be one of the the new the SLS, so the, yep. the first of these new giant rockets. Yep. goes out around the moon, yep. it's going to launch a, a quite a few spacecraft, yep. not people, yep. in that mission. And one of those could be if a cubesat we, that will go and spot the Apollo 10 lunar lander. I mean, that, that's fantastic, isn't it? It's amazing. As I said, it's, it's down to the funding, and I'm kind of... I'm in two minds over this because it's it's not really a vanity project, but it's kind of like where's the scientific return from this? So we're looking at what we could do in terms of other side missions with the same small CubeSat spacecraft and just use Snoopy as a kind of target of interest within the confines of that mission. But, yeah, it's, it's amazing that EM2, we've actually had conversations with them and they've said, you yeah, know, this could be a viable a viable option as one of the missions. So this is really, I mean, this is space archaeology, isn't it? I mean, this would be true space archaeology, going to find a 50-year-old object that's out on this weird orbit around the sun. Absolutely. It's, it's weird because, as I said, the only other remnant from that, that kind of era from the LEMS is to currently sit. It's the RTG from Apollo 13, which was designed to kind of... Sorry, RTG. So the, radio, the radiation thermo generator, basically the power supply, uh, was designed to kind of survive re-entry because it's a nuclear power source. So essentially that and bits of Apollo 13 are stuck at the bottom of the Pacific Trench, um, one of the deepest places on Earth. So that's one thing you could possibly go out and, fi- and find and have a bit of fun with. But um, until we go back to the surface of the moon, and they're talking about obviously protecting the original Apollo sites, so getting near those is going to be incredibly difficult. This is one of the really most interesting, I'd say, archaeological artefacts from, from any space era. Astronomer Nick Howes, who tweets as Nick Astronomer. Isn't that a remarkable story? It is. And a lovely sort of bonus of going back to the moon. Yeah, wouldn't that be fantastic to do that? So I hope they get it together to be able to do to do that mission. What's even more incredible at the moment, still, Tom Stafford, who commanded that spacecraft, is still alive. Um, Gene Cern and John Young sadly no longer with us but uh, you know wouldn't that be fantastic if he saw his spacecraft again 
That is amazing. And it definitely beats Tesla hands down as the coolest man-made object and the <laughs> and the first man-made vehicle to be in orbit around our solar system. That's absolutely right. Absolutely right. Yeah. Well, thank you very much to our guest, Liz Seward from Airbus Defence and Space, uh, for joining us in our new studio and also for bringing some rubberware. Yes. We, did, <laughs> we got, we got a little bit more pleasure out of those gloves than is seemly, I feel. We'll put the pictures up on uh, on Facebook they'll let us um, you just wanted to mention one more mission i think liz so there's a, a mission that has the study phase has been funded through the isa ministerial called truths and in fact the um acronyms uh, in sue's uh, sewing ladies reminded me of it it's um the acronym stands for the traceable radiometry underpinning terrestrial and helio studies oh, i hate wow. these acronyms wow. these acronyms drive me mad so in an era of fake news <laughs> we're sending out well Truth. And what it will do is it's a brand new hyperspectral instrument to study climate change. So it's actually very down to earth, but it does have an amazing acronym. Brilliant. Liz, thanks again. And thank you for listening. Do tell people about Space Boffins. Uh, we'd love your feedback as long as it's nice. So say nice things on uh, iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts from. Uh, we are supported by the UK Space Agency. We're very grateful to them. Uh, and let's end with a Christmas message from Gemini 6 in orbit above the Earth alongside Gemini 7 in 1965. And we'll see you in January. Year two, my six.